Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles in hand and uh, turn, please, to Amos. Book of Amos in your Old Testament, as you know, we're studying chapter by chapter through the nine chapters of Amos this summer. We come today to chapter 2 and verse 4 through 16, the title of the message, When Judgment Comes Home. Last Sunday, we looked at God's judgment on the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. Nations like Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Moab, and Ammon were indicted on charges of cruelty, greed, mercilessness, disloyalty, and vengefulness. And further, these transgressions were not isolated or aberrations. They were part of an ongoing pattern of abuse that was so deeply rooted in their behavior that it covered literally several generations of people. Well, the prophet Amos was bringing this message of judgment in the form of a sermon. And one can imagine as he was listing in his sermon the sins of Israel's enemies and the subsequent judgments that God was going to bring against their enemies, that the Israelites must have been punctuating every sentence with amen. Praise the Lord. You preach it, Brother Amos. And Amos seemed to be confirming what many of them already believed, that God was angry with the pagans, but pleased with them. Well, they were about to have that bubble burst very unceremoniously. And so let's read beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. Scripture says, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth and of the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And yet it was I who destroyed them, the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness for 40 years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. And then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down and filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift and the stalwart will not strengthen his power nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his, world, of his word. Now, it does not surprise you, at least it shouldn't, that God would hold even his chosen people accountable for their sins. Remember what we saw last week in Romans chapter 2, verse 11? Paul says, There is no partiality with God. God judges all people. 
pagan, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All the guilty will be held accountable by God. Now that leads to a very important question. What then is the advantage of being Jewish? What does it mean to be called God's chosen people if they aren't exempt from God's chastening hand? Well, that's a very good question. I've noticed you're asking some very good questions so far in this study. <laughs> and again, we find the answer in the book of Romans. Let's turn there quickly now in the New Testament. Romans chapter three, verse one. The apostle Paul, of course, himself Jewish, not only Jewish, but a very devout religious Jewish man. He called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin as touching the law blameless. And so he asked the question rhetorically, and then he answers his own question in Romans chapter three, verse one. The question is this, what then is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And his answer is this, verse two, great in every respect. First of all, that we were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so the chief advantage of being Jewish is that the Jewish people received God's direct revelation. They have the Old Testament. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the law. Not only that, God sent them prophets to warn them in their time of sinfulness. He gave them those men who he raised up to say, thus says the Lord. And so they were totally without excuse. Remember the pagans were without excuse because God wrote his law upon their heart and that they could see through nature who he is like and, and what he expects from them. But the Jews received direct revelation, the written word. And so what a great advantage that was to them. Now the question is, how did they respond to that great privilege? Well, not very well, as you know. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus observing how they responded to the fact that God himself came to live among them in the person of Jesus said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen would her brood, but you would not. That is, you were unwilling. Rather than receiving the word of the Lord and obeying it in large measure, they chafed under it. They rejected it, and they even rejected their own Messiah. Now you think of some of the privileges that they had just in Jesus' day. They had the Lord himself walking among them, performing miracles. God the Father declared this was indeed his son with an audible voice at the baptism of Jesus. Behold, God said, my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. Then all the signs and the wonders, my goodness, Jesus even raised a man from the dead but it was not enough. They still, by and large, willfully, stubbornly refused to believe. And it caused Jesus to say this in Matthew eleven twenty one: 21, woe to you, Shorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. These were two villages of Judah. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. It is the most wicked people that the Jews could think about were the, the folks from Tyre and Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah, we would say. And yet Jesus says those people didn't have the privilege of having God incarnate performing miracles in their streets. If they did, he said they would have repented, but you didn't. The tragedy is that those in Jesus' day failed to learn the lessons from their forefathers. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament that those things that we read about in the Old Testament were written for our benefit. I take from that that we don't make the same mistakes that they did. And yet 
the descendants that lived in Jesus' day of those who lived in Amos' day hundreds of years earlier did not learn their lessons. So let's go back now to Amos and let's walk through the specific sins of God's chosen people. He begins in verse 4 with the sins of Judah. You remember that Judah and Israel had divided in and about the year 922 BC after the death of King Solomon. His son Reboam came to the throne and he was uh, not a good king. In fact, he decided he was going to listen to his advisors and make the taxes higher and make the burden on the people harder than it had ever been to show them how tough he was. And what happened was that the northern tribes broke away. They elected their own king. And so from that point on, you had a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. And so Amos was from Judah. He was from the little village of Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He had traveled across the border up into the northern tribes, and he was preaching to them. And he begins by proclaiming judgment against their enemies, the Syrians, the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. And now he comes to verse 4, and he pronounces judgment on his own people, Judah. Look what he says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke its judgments, punishments, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. And so what are the specific sins of Judah? Well, first thing we notice is it was not an isolated sin. Just like the sins of the pagans, these were multiplied offenses over a long period of time for three transgressions and for four. This was repetitive, systematic, systemic behavior. Their primary sin, he says, is they have rejected the law of the Lord. That is, they are disobedient to God's revealed word. Remember, their great advantage is they had the revealed word. They knew God's specific will, what he said not to do and what he said to do, and yet they disavowed it. They disobeyed it. It was not as though they were ignorant of God's law. Every Jewish child grew up learning the Ten Commandments. Every Jewish child grew up memorizing Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was not ignorance that was the problem. It was rebellion. In fact, he says, they have walked after the lies of their fathers. And we can infer from that he's speaking of going after false gods. This seems to be the problem that Judah and Israel returns to generation after generation. You know that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first commandment went like this. He says, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Commandment number two. So every Jewish child memorized, first thing, those two commandments. And what did they do? They went after false gods generation after generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says a very similar thing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is how many? He's one. He's one God. And yet their sin was that under the pretense of worshiping Jehovah, the one true God, they were mixing and mingling their affections with the false gods of the nations that surrounded them. Gods like Molech, 
who required child sacrifice and of course the Baals. And God compares this action of disloyalty to him to an adulterous woman. In Isaiah chapter five, he compares it to someone who's given a piece of property. In Isaiah chapter five, he says, I planted a fertile field. God called the nation of Israel a fertile piece of land. And he says, I hedged it about. He put a fence all the way around it. And he said, I put a tower right in the middle so that they could see their enemies coming from afar. He took the rocks out of the soil was good. He gave them a choice vine to plant. And all he expected of them is that they produced good grapes. That's reasonable, right? You give someone a fertile piece of land, you take all the rocks out of it, you give them protection from their enemies and say, now all you gotta do is produce good grapes. He says, instead you produced in the Hebrew, bu'ushin, these little dried up huckleberries that are good for nothing. That was the indictment brought against God's people is that they did not do what God called them to do. Now in Ezekiel chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, just listen. In incredibly vivid language, Ezekiel the prophet compares the disloyalty of God's people to an adulterous woman. Hear this, God is speaking. He says, I pledge myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed the blood off of you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and with sandals of fine leather. I bound you in fine linen and covered you with rich fabric. I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your arms and chain on your neck, a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver while your clothing was of fine linen, rich fabric and embroidered cloth. You had choice flour and honey for your food. You grew exceedingly beautiful, fit to be a queen, your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor that I bestowed on you, says the Lord. What a beautiful picture. Remember, God took Israel, who was not a nation. He chose this one man, Abram, who was a pagan, living down in Ur of the Chaldees, and he chose by his own sovereign plan to make a great nation out of him. Remember, he gave him covenant promises. He says, I'm going to give you a land that I will show you. I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the shore, and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. God keeps his end of the bargain, right? And yet the nation of Israel was unfaithful. They went after these false gods, and God compares them to a woman who was in poverty. And God found her, and he cleaned her up, and he gave her beautiful clothes to wear, and he gave her great food to eat, and she turned into this beautiful person that everyone admired, but instead of using that relationship to bless others, here's what she did. Listen to verse 15. He said, but instead you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame and lavished your whorings on any passerby. You took some of the garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the harlot. Nothing like this has ever been or ever will be. You made yourself male images and with them you played the harlot and you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you and fed your choice flour and honey and oil and you set it before them as a pleasing odor and so it was, says the Lord. Do you get the image? She took all of the blessings, that is the nation of Israel, that God blessed her with and rather than worshiping God with them, she worshiped 
false gods. And how heartbreaking that is to the father. Now, by this point, remember Amos is preaching this as a sermon. Those listening to Amos' sermons must have been getting a little nervous. <laughs> they stopped amening. They stopped saying, praise the Lord, because they knew that they were just as guilty of these sins as their brothers down in Judah. Well, Amos does not leave them in suspense any longer. He finally comes to Israel in verse 6 of chapter 2. Remember, as he preaches this message, Amos is like an eagle circling his prey. He starts far off in Syria, and he gets closer with the Philistines, and then the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Judeans, and now he comes and lights upon the head of the nation of Israel. Verse six, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. Now there is a series of charges brought against Israel in rapid fire, machine gun like staccato fashion. And just as they're recovering from one, he hits them with another. So what are then the specific sins of Israel? Let's establish first, it's a pattern of sin, right? Just like with the pagans, just like with their brothers down in Judah, for three transgressions and for four, I will not withhold my punishment. This is a pattern of behavior over many years and several generations. First of all, he says, they have perverted justice. <clears throat> One of the things that angers the Lord God is the perversion of justice. That is the preying upon the poor and the helpless of society. And in most cases, that's the poor, it's the orphan, it's the widow. In fact, in the New Testament, James chapter 1, 27, from the positive perspective, God says pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, is to visit the orphan and the widow and to keep oneself pure from the world. In the Old Testament, he saw the plight of the poor, the downtrodden, the widow, the helpless, and here's what he says. He says that they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. The judges were so perverted that they would take a bribe and render any sort of verdict given the right price. In fact, the price didn't have to be very high. For as little amount of money as the price of a pair of old sandals, they would change the verdict. In fact, they would sell people into indentured servitude or slavery for the least little infraction. And God noticed it. Usually during times of material or economic prosperity, God's people can become dependent upon themselves. John Piper is famous for saying that 80% of Christians pass the test of struggles and trials and 80% of Christians fail the test of prosperity. I'm convinced that's true. Sometimes it's harder to serve the Lord in times of prosperity than in the hard times. Because in the hard times, you have to depend on the Lord. But oftentimes in times of prosperity, you're tempted to depend on yourself and those things that you've acquired. Well, this is exactly what had happened in Israel. Remember, this was a time of economic prosperity. Their enemies, the Syrians and the Egyptians, were on the wane. 
They were reclaiming a lot of the territories that they had lost in previous generations. The crops were good. There was money to be made, and yet they were perverting justice and the poor were suffering. And that led to sexual sins, as it often does. He says one of the sins is that a father and a son were going into the same girls. That is for sexual purposes. Now this could mean incest within families. What more likely it means is through the practices of the false gods. Many of these gods and goddesses had attached to their ritualistic worship sexual perversion. And the so-called priests and priestesses of these false gods were nothing more than prostitutes. And people in the name of worship were going in and, and it was uh, rampant in that part of the world and in that period. And God noticed it. He's angry about it. Something else that he's angry about is found in verse 8. And that is insincere worship. He says, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. Now note this, in the house of their God. Not only are they worshiping in these false gods' temples, then they're going over to the places where they worship the true God. Remember, they could no longer go down to Jerusalem, so they had set up shrines in various cities in the northern kingdom. And they would take garments and lay them down and prostrate themselves to pray. But these garments that they were laying on were not theirs. They had taken them as a pledge. Now what that means is this. Oftentimes the poor in those days had to take out micro loans, short term loans to buy food for that day. And so a wealthy person would of course take those loans and charge exorbitant interest on it. But the only thing of value that the poor had was literally the clothes on their back. And so they would take the coat of the poor person as collateral but the law clearly stated that by nightfall that coat had to be returned because it got cold at night in that part of the world and they didn't want them to freeze to death. But they were willfully ignoring that law, keeping that garment as pledge, and then they were laying that garment down as an act of worship. And God was sickened by that very thing. And then I think the ultimate insult and sin of the nation of Israel is found in verses nine through 11. They were denying the source of their blessings was even God. Remember times were good. And rather than God's blessing causing them to love God more, it drove them further away. Verse nine, yet it was I, this is God speaking, who destroyed the Amorite before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars and he was strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. I raised up for you prophets and young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel? Look, they were just enjoying the blessings of the Lord. He had defeated their enemies before them. He had given them good crops. He had given them godly men to lead them. But rather than responding in gratitude and thankfulness, they turned away from God. And God noticed their lack of thanksgiving. And dear ones, it's, it's an easy comparison to make. We need to be careful. As I said last week, I know that the United States of America is not God's second chosen people. But we must admit that we have been given incredible privileges here. Incredible privileges just think of the natural resources. We're just now beginning to appreciate how many natural resources we have in this great land. We have freedom like no nation on earth. 
We have enjoyed military success. God has spared us through two world wars in the last century, and we came out of each one stronger than the last as a nation. This nation is wealthy beyond belief. This is a place where a person can be born poor and through hard work and dedication can make something of themselves. That's why thousands of people every day risk their very lives to get here because they recognize this is a place that God has blessed perhaps like none other in human history. And so how have we responded to 200 years of God's unprecedented blessing? Well, for one thing, we took prayer out of the public schools. For another thing, in 1971, we made abortion legal such that one million babies a year are killed in this country legally. Did you know that the leading cause of death in the United States of America every year is abortion? There is no close second. The most dangerous place in America is in a mother's womb. That was not enough. Another response to 200 years of God's unprecedented blessing is that just this last year, our nation redefined God's definition of marriage to make it something he had never intended it to be. In essence, our nation has called good evil and evil good seemingly at every opportunity. In effect, we have invited Jehovah God out of our business. All the while, he continued to bless us. We have denied the source of our blessings was even God. And the Bible says, woe to such a nation as that. Verse 12 says they were guilty of another sin. Even as they were going down that slippery slope of rebellion, God was sending prophets to them to warn them. How do they respond? He says, verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. The Nazarites were a remnant of young men who says, we're not going to live like the rest of you. We're not going to drink alcohol. We're going to dedicate our life to serving Jehovah God. And you know what they said? Oh, come on. Everybody's doing it. Don't you want a little wine? They tempted them to, to leave their vows. And then he sends them prophets. And he says, and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. God would send these warnings. And rather than saying, Lord, thank you for warning us. You're exactly right. Thank you for sparing us. They silenced the prophets. And in many cases, killed them. Jesus says, you stoned the prophets and killed those that were sent to you. And Amos, being one of those, they tried to silence. Later on, and we're going to read about Amaziah, the priest who goes out to, to Amos and says, quit preaching that. Go back home to Judah. We don't want to hear that around here. Well, they told Amos he couldn't prophesy, and he kept prophesying. They told Peter in his day, don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. And Peter says, you men be the judge whether it is right to obey God or men. We can't help but preach. And we can't help but preach today, right? In, in the face of God's blessings, how can we be silent? We must give him glory. So what did God do about it? What did God do about the nation that took his blessings year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, and turned him aside? Well, he tells us, verse 13, he's had enough. He says, behold, 
I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down and filled with sheaves. I know a lot, a lot of you grew up on a farm, but some of us did. We get this, right? It's harvest time. They're out in the field harvesting the grain. And they want to get as much on the wagon as they can so they don't have to make two trips. And they're putting the sheaves, the bundled grain. And God says, I am weighted down. I've got as much as I can carry. You know what he's weighted down with? Their sin. And all it's going to take is one more sheave to go on top and it's going to be the tipping point and the breaking point and his judgment is going to be poured out. Here's how it's going to go. Verse 14, flight will perish from the swift and the stalwart will not strengthen his power nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. There are a lot of people who, when they think about catastrophe and hard times, think, well, I'll be fine. I'll stand. My wife teaches the two and three-year-olds here on Sunday morning. And last week, the Sunday school lesson was on David and Goliath. And she told me when we got home, they had a little three-year-old boy in their class. And every time she would say, Goliath would come out and no one would fight him. He would whisper under his breath, I'll fight him. <laughs> Four or five times through the lesson, no one would go out to fight Goliath. I'd fight him. And that's the kind of attitude we all have, right? When we hear about the nation of Israel, when we hear about God's judgment on Judah, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't flee. And so he, he leaves nothing to the imagination. He says, flight will perish from the swift. If, if you value how fast you can run, you're going to be frozen and paralyzed with fear. If you value your strength, he says, not even the strongest will stand. If you think, well, I can use my weapons, he says, the one who pulls the bow will not stand his ground. That is, you'll run. And even when you run, you'll not escape. He says, well, I'll jump on a horse and I'll get away. He says, no, not even who rides the horse will save his life. Even the bravest will flee naked. That is in the middle of the night, you'll run away like a little scared child in the face of God's judgment. So what are we to do? There is only one thing we can do. We must pray for mercy. Not justice, mercy. Oh God, we are guilty. We're guilty as the pagans. We're guilty as the Judeans. We're as guilty as the Israelites. Lord, we're guilty of ignoring your blessings and not understanding that our prosperity comes from you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, spare us. In place of judgment, would you send revival? Would you send contrition? Would you send reconciliation? Lord, would you change our hearts? That's not just true nationally. That has to be true individually. And let's get really specific. It has to start in the church. Peter says it's time for judgment to start in the house of the Lord. Did you know that God holds even born-again Christians accountable for their sin? In a different way. There's a difference between God's condemnation and God's chastening. In the New Testament, the Bible says those the Lord loves, that is the church, he chastens. And those of you who are parents know the difference, right? You go home today and 
you're taking a nap and you look outside and your children are playing in a busy street when you've told them a hundred times to play in the backyard. And you look at it, oh honey, look out there. They're having such a good time. I can't stand to tell them not to do that. Let's just watch them as they play in the busy street. If you do that, do you love your child? No. If you love that child, you're going to race out there with the sternest look you've ever had, perhaps with a switch in your hand, and you're going to say, you get yourself in here. <laughs> how many times have I told you to stay out of the street? Do you know how dangerous that is? And you're going to remind them in some tangible way not to do that again if you love them. That's what God does with his church. When we sin, when we stray, he loves us enough not to let our sin go to its logical conclusion. Because you know what the logical conclusion of sin is? Death. And he says, no, I love you too much. I'm going to bring you back. And there are people in this room who can give testimony that when God disciplines his children, it hurts. It's painful. But it's what we need. And he brings us back into himself. Now, that's chastening. Condemnation is when he just washes his hands of us and he lets us go to hell. He's not going to let any of his elect go to hell. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, you can sin, you can stray. The Lord's not going to send you to hell. He may kill you. I'm not kidding. The Bible says there is a sin unto death. You remember Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and took it to the church and said, look how much we're giving. And they held part of it back and lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. He can do that, by the way. Those people were Christians. Now hear this. We're out of time. Every time a Christian sins and lives to breathe another breath, it is a manifestation of God's grace. He doesn't have to do that. But he's long-suffering. He's merciful. He woos us. He draws us with his kindness. He draws us with his loving chastening. He wants us to get back in line and to serve him for his glory. What about you, dear one? If you're a Christian here today, maybe you have strayed. Maybe you have been insincere in your worship. Maybe you have begun to trust in your riches, or your 401k, or your job, or your career, or your looks. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. That is, don't buy into this world's philosophies, because this world is going to end up in judgment. Instead, he says, be transformed, be different by the renewing of your mind. That is, through the study and the practice of God's word. Maybe there's a person here today and you've never been saved. You're still in your sins. Here's good news for you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you will repent of your sins, if you'll trust in what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection on your behalf, you will be forgiven and you will be saved. And he'll start you out on that road that leads to heaven. Let's thank the Lord for those truths. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and Lord, I thank you for this book of Amos. As hard as it is to listen to and to preach, Lord, it's, it's needed because we see in the sins of your chosen people 
the sins of our own nation, Lord, the, the sins of insincere worship and the mixing and mingling of the worldly with the sacred. Lord, we see sexual perversion. Lord, we see greed and injustice. And uh, Lord, we know you hate all of those things. And so, Lord, we want to stand today and intercede on behalf of our nation, a nation who is guilty and deserving of your judgment. Lord, would you stay your hand for another day? Lord, would you give one more opportunity to repent? Father, would you send revival in place of judgment? Lord, may it begin right here in this church. Lord, I pray that you'd convict Christians of where we have gone astray. Would you chasten us and love us enough to bring us back into right relationship with you? Lord, would you do these things for your own honor and your glory? Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.